When I get to this time every year, I think about kids going off to school, kids going off to college, and the choices that are involved in that type of endeavor. I hate to confess that when I went to Eastern Nazarene College for the first time, I didn't know what I wanted to major in, what my subject choice would be. And I was sort of flipping a coin on the way into the registration line as a freshman, not knowing yet what I was gonna do. I had signed loans already, but I still didn't know, you know what I wanted to do. And when I got to the head of the line, when I got to the place where you had to decide what courses you're going to take, I didn't know. And so I began to talk with the counselor there and they said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think I would rather, I think I would like to either study religion or music. I'm not sure which. And the um, counselor said to me, well, if you study music, it's a five-year program, and you have to start with the very first semester. Otherwise, you can't get the courses you need sequentially to finish in five years' time. But if you study religion, it's an, you, have, you have more time to make your choice because the first two years are general courses anyway, and you could actually switch to religion at the beginning of your junior year and still finish the sequence and be done in four years' time. And so I figured, well, that I needed to start music and give myself two years to make up my mind. And that's how my choice was made. Some counselor made the choice for me. I don't know that that's the best way to make choices. I think there are probably better plans. And you know, as I look back later in terms of dealing with my calling to ministry, it was during that junior year when I probably should have made a switch that the Lord began to talk to me about calling again, and I bargained with him and said, you know, Lord, if you let me finish this music degree that I started, if you really want me to go to seminary, if this is really you talking, I'll do that later. Another thing, that's another way of dealing with God I would not recommend, but that's you know, autobiographical. And so um, God left me alone until I finished my college degree. And then he came knocking again and said, this really is me. This really is me, and you need, to, you need to make a switch. I think it's an interesting conversation when we talk about discerning the will of God for our lives. And I think often when we talk about discerning God's will for our lives, we think in terms of one plan for our entire life, that God wants us to be this thing or that thing, or he wants us to enter this career. And sometimes that may be true, but I think more often than not, that understanding, that desire is an expression of our human desire to have things settled simply so I don't have to continue to struggle to know what God's will is on a more daily or continual basis. Uh, so I don't know that we always get a lifetime view from the beginning. In fact, I suspect we rarely get that, that God is more interested in our daily dependence on him than anything else. And if we can manage to figure out the daily dependent stuff, the big picture stuff will fall into place. The passage I'm reading this morning from Jeremiah 18 again is our theme verse for the year. And I'd like to um, give it a little more attention this morning. This is Jeremiah 18.1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. 
So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I, can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. On the surface, this passage is about God's right, God's right to shape the course of nations and to shape our lives as he sees fit. I think most Christians would agree, at least intellectually, that God has a right to shape our lives. He created us, he reconciled us. Consequently, he has a claim on our lives. But practically, how does he exercise that claim? How does that work? How does it happen? And, and do we really cooperate with the plans that God has for us? I think, I think we go, before we go on to address some of those questions, we have to dig a little bit deeper into the passage under the surface to get the nuances of what's included here. God is the potter in the story, no question. He reserves the right to shape our lives and the lives of people and the lives of nations. But what about that clay? The, the implication of the language here is that the vessel was spoiled not because of a mistake made by the potter, but because of the quality of the clay. Now you probably know there's different grades of clay. There's earthenware, which is common clay, contains various minerals such as iron oxide, which is rust, and in its raw state, it may contain sand or small bits of rock. It's fired at a very low temperature. That's earthenware. A grade above that is stoneware. It's a hard and durable clay. It has a variety of natural colors. It must be fired at a higher temperature than earthenware. It's a stronger product when finished. And then there's kaolin, which is, well, that's the finest quality of clay, and it's the main ingredient when used in making porcelain. The particle size of the material itself is larger. It's fired at the very highest temperature. In the passage, the implication is the vessel is marred because the clay chosen for the product cannot handle the type of use the artist had hoped for it. You don't use earthenware to make a fine porcelain china teacup. You get the sense from the passage that the potter wanted to make a teacup or other, some, some other high-level vessel, but the clay itself made it impossible for the potter to create what he wanted. Too many impurities in the clay. And so the potter starts over, and he makes a vessel appropriate 
to the kind of clay he has to work with. I think this is simultaneously good news and bad news. Um, The bad news is we can disqualify ourselves from becoming the thing God wants to make of us. I mean, that's rough news. The presupposition there, the thing that comes before even that thought is, it's nice to know that God maybe has something in mind for our lives, that he has a plan, that there is some shape that he's hoping for. I mean, if you're not Christian, I'm not sure you believe even that. He wants us to realize particular goals. And if we allow him to shape us, we will be able to achieve the dream he had for us in creation. But I'm not certain that the goal is always a particular destination because vessels are for service. And it may be that his will for us is defined by a particular style of living and less a vocational choice. To be sure, he may have created us in particular ways that draw us to particular vocations. It may be his desire that we offer ourselves to him in a particular vocational pattern. I don't deny that for a second. But I think it's easy to get consumed with those big picture vocational choices and forget that God has a plan for how we live each day, what the shape of our lives are, what the the usefulness of our lives are on a day-to-day basis. But we we can disqualify ourselves from that if there are too many impurities in the clay. He just may not be able to use us as he desires. I think two things happen if that's the case. He might choose to throw us back on the wheel and make something else that is useful out of us. Even if it wasn't what he had hoped when he started the project working in us, um, he still uses us. I mean, it would be grand if I were the vessel that held the flowers on the altar in the house of the Lord. But if I can't be that, it's not a bad thing to simply be the jar that holds the pencils for the kindergarten class. Still useful, still purposeful, still meaningful. And as long as we're willing to be shaped, God will use us according to his knowledge of who we are based on the type of clay we present to him. Now, underlying this whole prophecy of doom, that's what this is in this passage. This is a prophecy of doom for Israel, is a truth that we sometimes miss. And that is, sometimes God changes his mind about us. Did you catch that in the passage? If I plan doom for this nation, but after I speak to them, think Nineveh, they repent and change their ways, I'll change my mind about them. I'll do something different. Because God responds to what we bring. Or if I plan blessing for this nation, and yet they turn their backs, walk away, refuse to cooperate, refuse to be the people I call them to be, I'll change my mind. Isn't it interesting to know that God changes his mind? You get the impression his will is not fixed. Well. That's exactly what it says, isn't it? His desire is fixed. 
His desire that we be people of his kingdom is fixed. The pathway to that is fixed. But he works with what we bring and who we are. There's a second option that could come from continually refusing to cooperate with the grace of God that is much less desirable. In the next chapter of Jeremiah, God speaks again. and He tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house to buy a vessel, to take it out to a field, to gather the elders of Israel around and break the pot. And so he does that, smashes the pot, and the Lord says to Israel through Jeremiah, time's up, opportunities are exhausted, judgment is now coming, and now you'll be useful to me, but the way you'll be useful to me is you will be an example of what not to do, what not to be. That's harsh, but that is the judgment that comes. They were vessels, but they would not be used. The clue to this, I think, is found in verse 12 and verse 15 of this chapter. The people's response to God and his evaluation of the situation is summed up there. The image is given of Jeremiah at the potter's house. The conversation of the vessels is had. You sense God saying, I'd like to do this with you. But then he places the decision in the hands of the people about who they will be. And in verse 12, you get the response of the people. This is, what God, this is how God classifies their response. But they say, but Israel says, it is no use. We will follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of our evil will. That's Israel's response. And God laments this in verse 15. This is the sorrowful, lamenting song of God in response to their choices. But my people have forgotten me. They burn offerings to a delusion. They have stumbled in their ways in the ancient roads and have gone into bypaths, not the highway. His desire was for them to walk the highway of holiness. They've found a little road off to the side. And because of that, they make their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. You know what it means when the writer says a thing to be hissed at? It's shame on you. That's what the choice of the people is. And I, I want to know what does it mean to forget God? What does that look like? People who forget God have alternate gods or goals for their lives. We all serve or pursue something. It may be our idea of what a good life looks like, maybe our career, which may provide esteem or wealth or influence, maybe our families investing all of our time in doing what we think is best for them, whether they think it's best for them or not. We may, it may be that we are preoccupied with entertainment or athletics or music or some other hobby or pastime. Most of the things that we serve aren't bad things in and of themselves, but whenever we substitute some other pursuit or some other goal for the goals that God sets before us, then we're off course. Then we are 
proclaiming with Israel, we will follow our own stubborn plans. We will be who we will be. We will choose who we will be. How do you know if you serve a different God or different gods? Well, I think you have to ask yourself some questions. Um, How frequently do you think about or remember God during your day? How frequently do you worship or express your gratitude to God? Does the activity of your life demonstrate that God has a central place in your life? Does the investment of your resources demonstrate your devotion to God? What do you spend your time doing? Do you pay any attention to the needs of your neighbors? Do you make choices based on your desire to bring the compassion of Christ to the people around you? What matters most to you? Sometimes the evidence of forgetting God is not what we pursue, it it can be in the way we pursue the things we do. The children of God live by heavenly wisdom, by by principles based in the kingdom of God. We, We value honesty, fairness, industry, equality, compassion, kindness. We do not advance on the backs of others. We don't get ahead as a result of corporate greed. We don't ignore justice, we do justice. We refuse to chase things or people because of popularity. We don't pursue the goals of the kingdom by the methods of the sinful, greedy, self-centered world. I think there's one other indication that we're forgetting God. Kingdom of God citizens are always interested in the success and well-being of the other citizens. We succeed together. We achieve together. We care for one another. And the compassion we extend to one another in the kingdom stretches past the kingdom citizens to every person on the planet. The good news is this. Even if we are lousy clay at present, God doesn't toss the clay out the window into the river. God is continually, according to verse 8, determining the level of our usefulness based on what we present to him. And if we turn to him, if we invite him to help us, if we humble ourselves, he doesn't bring the disaster we ought to expect because he is a merciful God. But stubbornness and forgetfulness lead to disaster every time. The author of Romans picks up this theme in in chapter 9, verse 20. He says, But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? We would all say, yes, he has the right to shape me, to make me in ways that are useful to him. But saying that, agreeing that he has the right, and cooperating with that are two completely different things. You can acknowledge that someone is in charge 
without making any effort to be obedient, to cooperate, to remember. Unless you make some commitments, unless you establish some goals, unless you reject some alternatives, unless you give up the right to be exactly the kind of person, kind of individual, even the kind of Christian that you want to be, well, what use are you going to be to God? Unless you choose to continually remember God and to make plans to do that, what use will you be? Will you be a useful vessel, vessel and, and an Onesimus kind of vessel, a useful vessel to God, or will you be a vessel that demonstrates what not to do? You, you bring that to the potter's will. This morning I placed a prayer on the church website. This is John Wesley's covenant prayer. And I think at some level it's the epitome of the kind of commitment the potter calls us to so that we can be most useful to him. I'd encourage you to find this prayer and read it and figure out to what extent you're willing to make it your own. This is John Wesley's covenant prayer. Contemporized a bit. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, place me with whom you will, put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. Are you ready to make that kind of a commitment to the Father? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is our desire to be useful to you in your kingdom. Lord, I don't pretend to know the plans you have for each individual here, for our town, for our nation, for our world, but I know that I can only make commitments for me. And so I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help me. If there are ways that my behavior demonstrates that I have forgotten you, forgive me. And enable me to remember you, to act in conformity to your will, to forsake any impurity that exists in me, so that I, I may be a useful vessel in your house and in your kingdom. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. When you go to buy a house, you don't look at the listing online and send out your check. 
You visit. You inspect. You walk the property. You check to see if the water is brown or clear and turn the faucet on and off. You, you take some time because a commitment to a house is a big thing and you don't make the decision quickly. I passionately care that you make the kind of commitment to Christ that I talked about today. But I wrote the words on the website so that you would go and look at them on Facebook, excuse me, so that you would figure out what the prayer says and that you would take some time to decide, will you make this kind of a commitment? It's a bigger commitment than the kind of house you buy. It involves more than that. It takes some time to consider, and I pray that in the week ahead, you will read that prayer. You will consider what it says, that you will decide whether you will serve in a way that is completely abandoned to Christ or whether you will continue to hold on to your stubborn way of doing things. Would you consider his call? Would you consider his desire that you surrender yourself to the shaping of the potter's hand so that you can fulfill his dream for you? And now may he who began a good work in you carry it on to completion until the day of Christ's appearing. Amen.